When I was in high school, the very first job that I had, I've told some of you this before, first job that I had was at Chick-fil-A. Uh, now this was, yeah, this was about 25 to 30 years ago, so a while back. And uh, one of the tasks that they gave me at Chick-fil-A was to stand out in front of the restaurant. It was a Chick-fil-A in a mall. So we would stand out in front of the restaurant right around lunchtime and hand out free samples. So you'd have a, a tray filled with nuggets. And as people walked by, your goal was to try to get them to try the free sample of Chick-fil-A nuggets. Now, this was before a whole lot of people knew how great the food was. Uh, not as many people had heard of Chick-fil-A. So you would stand out there and have to kind of try to sell it, you know, as people walked by, hoping that they would come to Chick-fil-A instead of Wendy's or Burger King or whatever else was around. So you'd hand a chicken nugget out and go, would you like to try a sample of hot, fresh, juicy chicken, right? And you would use as many great adjectives as you could think of to describe the chicken. And uh, what I found was, even though I knew the chicken was fantastic, you today, if you've eaten it, you know the chicken is fantastic. Here's what I found. A lot of people didn't take the chicken. A lot of people walked right by, uh, which astounded me. I just thought, you know, there's no catch here. If you just taste the chicken, trust me, this is going to change your life. You will be amazed that something this good could emerge from a mall food court. You've not tasted mall food like this before. Just taste it. Just take it, right? There were times I was tempted just to kind of put it in their mouths as they walked by, right? Just, just try a taste. And I promise you'll love it. But people would walk by. In fact, of, of 100 people, of 100 people walked by, probably 90 of them would turn down the chicken. Now, I, I thought about that over the years, and I've thought, why is that? Why would people turn down what is a free gift? I wasn't making them buy anything. I think there are a few reasons. One is that we are, we are accustomed to being suspicious of free stuff. Right, if somebody calls you and says, I have a free gift for you, your immediate thought is, what do I have to buy or sign up for or do in order to get your free gift? So when we hear free, we're immediately suspicious. Right, But I think there's another reason people turned down the free chicken, and it was this, they weren't hungry. Uh, some of them had probably just eaten. We were in the food court. Others of them just went, you know what? I'm not hungry right now, so I'm not going to take the chicken. I would guess that if they were starving, right? If, if somebody had just hiked through the Mojave Desert and right at the end of the desert, sitting on the edge was a Chick-fil-A and me standing there with a tray of nuggets saying, would you like to try it? They would try it, right? They might even grab the whole tray and run away because they were starving. Right? Starving people don't turn down free gifts that bring them life. Right? Starving people don't turn down free food. Now, the reason I share that is because as we look through the scripture, as we read the Bible, really from the beginning to the end, it is clear that all of us human beings are dying of people. We are people starving for life. And the reason we're dying is because we have run away from the source of life. God has offered us life as a free gift and we have run away. And so as you read through the Bible, uh, the story develops of humanity running from God's life. So that by the time we get to the coming of Jesus Christ, mankind is in a dark and desperate place, ready to die. 
And so the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God has looked at us starving, dying people and said, here's life. You just have to take it. There's no catch. All you've got to do is come to me and take the life. What we celebrate this morning on Easter, what we celebrate, the reason we meet every Sunday is to celebrate that God sent his son Jesus who died in our place. He took the punishment for our rebellion against God. And then on that third day, he rose from the dead and he defeated death. And he defeated sin once and for all so that God can look at people who are dying in sin and say, here is life. All you got to do is believe. All right, we call that grace. Grace simply means unmerited favor. That a relationship with God is not something any of us can earn, not something any of us deserves, but something God has given out of his kindness and his mercy to us. Uh, We're going to look at a parable this morning in which we get a feeling for the magnitude of God's grace. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, primarily this morning. And we're going to see the magnitude of God's grace. We're going to see that God's grace is so unparalleled, so amazing, in fact, so absolute that it is at times scandalous and offensive. Those who hear the good news of the grace of God at times say, well, that's so good, it can't be true. Right? Just like those mall goers with my chicken nugget, we're suspicious of free. But as we look at Matthew chapter 20, we're going to see a God who loves us so much that he says, I'm always calling people to me and offering life as a free gift Right, and as we move into Matthew 20, I really want to ask two questions for all of us to think about this morning. First one is this. Have you accepted God's grace? Have you accepted God's grace? Do you know this morning that because of the grace of God, because Jesus died and rose again, do you know that you have eternal life? And if not, the good news of the message this morning is all you have to do is come to him in faith and he gives life for free. Second, if you know him, do you extend grace? Or do you and I find grace offensive and scandalous to the point that we say, I deserve grace, but that person does not. Are we extenders of grace who constantly, in reflection of the God who found us, are constantly going out into our world to say, there is a God who loves you so much that he has offered life for free. All you got to do is come to him in faith. Have we accepted grace and do we extend grace? That's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 20 this morning. If you've got a Bible, look with me. At Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says in red, so this is the words of Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard. And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. 
And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Now the context of this parable is immediately following uh, the account of what is called the rich young ruler. You may remember there was a young man, a wealthy young man, who came to Jesus and he said, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells the guy, well, you know what? Obey the commands, all of these things. And the guy says, hey, I've done all of that. And Jesus says, well, then there's one more thing you need to do. You got to sell everything you have, donate it to the poor, and come follow me. Right now, what Jesus is getting at is this. He knew that the man trusted in his money more than he trusted in God. And he says, for you, you need to understand that you cannot rely upon your wealth. You rely upon God for eternal life. The man goes away sad. Now the disciples see this and Peter, the one who is always wanting to ask questions and sort of push the issue, Peter sees all of this and he looks at that rich young man and he says, hey, Jesus, just a question. I've got a couple of questions for you. Uh, Those of us here, I and my fellow disciples, Hey, we've given up everything for you. We did what that guy would not do. We gave up our houses. We gave up, we gave up our security to follow you. And he says, what then will there be for us? What's in it for us, Jesus? We did the right thing. And Jesus says, essentially, yeah, you will be rewarded in this age and in the age to come. And then he says this, but some who are first will be last and some who are last will be first. And then he tells this crazy parable about the landowner. And the point of the parable is very simply this, that God's kingdom runs on grace, not on merit. God's kingdom runs on grace, not on merit. Peter, you think you have earned favor before God. And then he tells a story that says, you have it so upside down, Peter, you don't even know how upside down you are. And I want to show us this morning four characteristic of grace, of God's grace. And we're going to look at the basis of God's grace that we celebrate this morning as well. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Four characteristics of God's unbelievable grace. And the first one is this, grace is unbelievable earned. Grace is unearned. 
As I read the parable, it might have immediately struck you that the first guys who come at the very beginning of the day, which would have been about six in the morning, they show up and it says they agreed together with the landowner that he would pay them a denarius, right? So it sounds kind of, the, the Greek word here is symphoneo. They, they kind of sounded it out. It sounds like they haggled their way to an agreement, right? He says, okay, I'll pay you a denarius for a day in my vineyard. Right, and then they go out. He goes out about nine in the morning. He goes out about lunchtime. He goes out about 3 p.m. And he, and he recruits more workers. And what's interesting is nobody else haggles with him. The ones who come later, he says this. He says, you guys come onto the vineyard. I'll pay you whatever's fair. And they go, all right, sounds good to us. It's, it's later in the day. We'll take whatever you'll pay. The last guys, the guys that come at the 11th hour, he doesn't even say anything about money. He just looks at him and goes, why are you still standing here? And they go, I don't know. Nobody gave us a job. And all he says is, all right, you, you go into the vineyard too. And they don't even talk about money, right? So that by the time you get to the end of the parable, it's clear that the first guys believe that they have clearly earned more than the last guys, right? And, and from a human perspective, all of us would say, yeah, absolutely. You worked however many, 12 hours And these guys worked one hour, you've earned more. But here's what the first guys are forgetting. And this is what Jesus is saying to Peter and what Jesus is saying to us. All of it belongs to the landowner. Okay, the only reason that he agreed to pay you a denarius is because he has the money, he has the field, he has the job. Where were you before this landowner found you? You were sitting in the marketplace with nothing. And out of his kindness, he said, I want you to come in. And out of his grace, he says, I'll give you a denarius for a day's work. Right? Look at it this way. Some of us, when we were kids, we probably came to our parents and we said, hey, uh, if I do X, right? If I do an extra chore today, my kids have done this. I do an extra chore. Maybe I sweep the sidewalk. What will you give me in terms of pay? And mom and dad would look and they go, I'll tell you what, I'll give you five bucks. What if I clean the garage? I'll give you 20 bucks for cleaning the garage. Right, so you go into the garage and you do all the work all day long and you sweat in the heat and you clean that garage and it's spotless and you even do extra work and you come at the end of the day and they hand you $20 and you say, you know, mom and dad, I really feel like I deserve more than this because the work was harder than I thought it was. Okay, if you're a parent... What do you say? What does this word deserve? Look around you. Whose house are you in? Whose clothes are you wearing? Whose food are you eating? Deserve's got nothing to do with it. I gave you the job and I paid you the pay because I wanted to be generous. And that's what we forget often in our relationship with God. Everything we have is unearned. You sit here in this room with breath in your lungs and a beat in your heart because God is gracious. So that when it comes to a relationship with him, Romans chapter 4 will say, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due. In other words, if you had something you could give to God, he would give you payment. But you don't. 
But to the one who does not work, that's you and me, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. God gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ when you believe because God is gracious and good. You and I have nothing God needs. We have nothing God needs. Everything that we do, we do because God has given us the ability to do it. Psalm chapter chapter 50. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. God says to the nation of Israel, you offer sacrifices to me because you think I need them. I don't need them. When I was a kid, we had a cat. The cat's name was Butterball. I don't remember why we named it Butterball. I think because it had some little yellow spots on it that looked to us like butter. Right? Butterball was a typical cat in that she really didn't contribute anything tangible to our home. Right? But, but periodically, here's what Butterball would do. Butterball would bring us gifts. Right? So you would come home and there would be a dead mouse on the doorstep or a snake, or occasionally she would bring us live gifts. Sometimes she actually brought living birds into the house and set them free. Why'd she do that? I think she was trying to give something back, right? You feed me, and I bring you a bird. Now, what's the problem? I didn't need those things. Right? I never said, ever, ever, I wish somebody would bring me a bird to fly around the dining room. Never. In fact, all of the need in that relationship was one-sided. We fed the cat. We sheltered the cat. We gave the cat water. We took the cat to the vet, which didn't feel like giving to her, but it was. We spent money on the cat. The cat had nothing to give. She was a leech, right? But she brought us What she brought us, because she loved us, I suppose. That's a similar position to how you and I stand before God. You have nothing he needs. Now, when we know God through Jesus Christ, God is pleased with our works of service. God is pleased with attitudes of the heart that reflect him. Why? Because he loves us and knows that obedience is better for us than disobedience. That's how he made the world. When we sin, we die. And God knows that. And so obedience pleases him. Obedience pleases him because in our obedience, as the spirit moves in us, we reflect the character of God to the world that needs to know him. And so obedience does please him, but we have nothing to give. Everything God has given, he has given us for free. Grace is unearned. And Jesus is telling Peter and his disciples, everything you have, the fact that you're in my group, that is absolutely unearned. There's nothing you can do to merit a relationship with God. God in Jesus Christ has done all the work so that grace is unearned. Secondly, grace is unfair. Grace is unfair. Uh, The response to these guys who came early in the morning isn't that surprising, is it? In fact, I was uh, talking this week with a relative about what I was going to preach on this morning. And I I told him it's this parable of the landowner and I described it. He goes, oh yeah, that one. He goes, I've always had problems with that parable. 
As I read it, some of you thought the same thing, didn't you? It's, it's not fair. I mean, th- these guys did work for 12 hours and the other guys only worked for one hour. It is not fair. I, I was reminded as I studied it this week that I had an experience in college that was almost precisely like this one in many ways. Uh, I've told you before, I was a mechanical engineering major. And I was typically kind of a B student. I was certainly not at the top of the class. And it wasn't uncommon in mechanical engineering courses that you would take a test and the class average would be in the 50s or the 60s. And so the professor, out of kindness and grace, would curve it, right? So if you got a higher grade, you'd get up in the 90s maybe, or even a 100. He would curve the grade. Uh, I was almost never the curve breaker. My roommate was usually the curve breaker. But I took heat transfer my senior year in college, and it's a class that's as exciting as it sounds <laughs> about the delights of transferring heat from one surface to another. It was, it was rumored to be a very difficult class. Uh, when we took the first test, I studied for it. I got the test back, and I had, I think it was an 82. And I looked at that test, and I thought, man, this is pretty good. I got an 82. And then the professor got up, and he said, I'm very disappointed in the grades in this class. Because the class average, was, it was like a 57. And I, and I heard that, and then I looked at my test, and I thought, I win! <laughs> it was the first time in all of my college career that I was the curve breaker. And I thought, this is going to go well for me. And he said, I'm so disappointed. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you another opportunity to take this test again. And the anger in my heart was so hard to quantify. I mean, I was so bitter. I remember thinking, you are punishing those of us who studied And rewarding those who did not. As I read this parable this week, I thought, that's exactly how these first workers are feeling. What did I want? I wanted grace for me, right? Technically, what did I actually get on the test? I got an 82. What did I want? A hundred. And I wanted justice for everybody else. Right? I wanted them to get lower grades. I hated grace at that moment because it's unfair. And that's the challenge that these other workers face. To put it in other terms, God gives grace to saints and scoundrels alike. God gives grace to saints and scoundrels alike. Now, for some of you, that feels like really good news because you believe you're a scoundrel. For some of you, you're sitting in the room and you're going, thank God. Because the things I've said, the things I've done, the things I've thought about, I deserve hell. And thank God that grace is unfair. For others, that frustrates you. Because you've done everything right. You've gone to church You've read the Bible. You've stayed within the lines and then you look to your left, you look to your right and you see people that have hurt you or disobeyed God and you don't want to forgive. 
and you don't want to extend grace. But God gives grace to saints and scoundrels alike. And here's what we forget. We're all scoundrels. We're all scoundrels. Now granted, some of us may be worse scoundrels than others. But when we stack up against the infinite righteousness of God, the distinctions tend to fade. And so we thank God that grace is unfair. What is fair? We have earned death. We have earned hell. And the unfair grace of God gives us what we don't deserve. Philip Yancey, in his beautiful book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says this, significantly, many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers and the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did the original hearers. We risk missing the story's point that God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we would all end up in hell. Grace cannot be reduced to generally accepted accounting principles. Then he says this, in the bottom line realm of ungrace, some workers deserve more than others. In the realm of grace, the word deserve does not even apply. That's what Jesus is getting at. And thank God for that. Grace is unearned. Grace is unfair. Thirdly, grace is unlimited. Unlimited. One of the aspects of this parable that I love is that the landowner keeps going out to find more people. He hires people at the beginning of the day. And then he goes out later in the day and goes, anybody else need a job? Come on in. He goes out in the middle of the day. Anybody else need a job? He goes out in the afternoon. All the way to the 11th hour, you have to realize that the workday ended around 6 p.m. This is 5 p.m. This landowner is still out there and he's saying there are enough jobs for anybody who wants to come. And in his grace, he pays those who come at every stage of the process. He's always looking. Now, if you followed the news this week, no doubt you saw all of the dust up about the, the, the United Airlines airplane and all of that. Now, I'm not going to talk about that in detail this morning, except to say this. One thing I think we all recognize is that airplanes only have so much space, right? Airplanes only have so much space. You can only fit so many people on the plane. They only have so much overhead space as well. Only so many bags can fit up there, right? So when there is more space than, excuse me, more people than space, that you got to decide who gets on, who gets off. It's just reality. It's just physics. It's one of the reasons that every airline, when you are boarding in this day and age, notice there's a, there's what? There's a priority system. So you stand in the line and they say, with the diamond platinum elite plus customers, board now. And then the diamond platinum elite minus customers, you board now. And they go all the way down to the bronze non-elite customers. And if you're like me, you're still standing there. 
at this point. And they look at you and they say, we got a seat left on the wing, right? That's the way that priority and space has to work in our world. It's not just airlines, by the way. Restaurants work that way. Concert venues work that way. Hotels work that way. That is the way the world works. There's only so much space in some places. And once the space is full, it becomes a priority process. The significant, the wealthy, the more important, get in, get privileged space. That is the world. That is not the kingdom of God. The landowner keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. How can grace be unlimited? How can there be enough for everybody and everything we've done? Because of what we sang about this morning, the death of God's only son, who is God in the flesh, an infinite sacrifice for our sin. And then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God says, I accept the payment of my son for the sin of every man, woman, and child. All through history, there is enough. Grace is unlimited. Luke chapter 15, we find the parable of the prodigal son, maybe the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. Right before the parable of the prodigal son, you may remember there's also a short parable about a shepherd. And Jesus simply says, look, if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, he will leave the 99 in the open field and go look for the one that is lost, right? And it's such a striking image because your question when you read it initially is, you already have 99. Why do you need one more? Right, 99 sheep is, is enough to take care of. Uh, they, are, they are each and every one of them in need of your care. Each and every one of them is dumb as a brick and defenseless virtually. They are nature's marshmallows. Right? Why do you need another? And Jesus' point, because he loves those sheep and they've been placed under his protection. And that's God. He says, I will go out. I will find the lost one. I will seek them down. Grace is unlimited. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, Jesus would say to you, there is still room. There is always room. There is always grace to spare. Just come. Just come. He will not run out of supply. Grace is unearned, unfair, unlimited, fourthly, unparalleled, unparalleled. There is nothing like it. There is no other God like our God. There's, there's a famous old story of, of, a, of a conference, a theological conference in Britain where Uh, several of the top theological thinkers in Britain were gathered around and they're discussing what makes Christianity unique among all the world religions. Why is it different? And they all tossed out differing kinds of ideas. Maybe it's something related to resurrection and somebody else said, well, now other myths have have somebody kind of rising from the dead. Now, certainly not like Christianity. Maybe it is the law. Maybe it is this. And apparently the story goes 
that C.S. Lewis, right, the great British writer of Chronicles of Narnia and a number, number of other books, walked in the room and he said, what's the dust up about? And they said, we're trying to figure out what makes Christianity unique. And he said, that's easy. It's grace. There is no other system that takes sin seriously and offers an escape. There is no other God who adheres to his holiness and justice. And yet because of his love and grace says, here's a way to life. And he placed all of the weight of our sin on Jesus Christ. Who bore the penalty of death in our place. And rose again so we can have life. There's no other God like that. Grace is unparalleled. It is the only way. Immediately following this parable, Jesus yet again predicted his death and resurrection to his disciples. He said, by the way, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. After three days, I'm going to rise again. Right? This was a message the disciples always struggled with hearing. And Jesus reiterates it again. I think the placement is significant to say this. The basis of God's grace is the death and resurrection of God's Son. It's what we celebrate today. That God in His grace said, I have to make room for people who have wandered far away, rebelled against me, so they can know me. And so through Jesus Christ, He made a way and He is always calling through his spirit. Just come, just come, just come. All who believe in Jesus Christ will have life. All right, so again, as we close, two questions for us to dwell on. First one is this, like we said at the beginning. Will we accept God's grace? Will we accept it? No matter how much of a scoundrel you feel you are this morning, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is bigger. Everybody is welcome. He comes at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m., all the way to the end, calling, come on, come on, come on. All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and you have eternal life. Have you accepted God's grace in Jesus Christ? If not, perhaps this is the day. The Spirit is calling. You can come talk to me after the service. You can come talk to whoever you came in the room with or somebody you know or one of the other pastors or ministers you saw up here this morning. And we can talk to you more about that. Secondly, will we extend God's grace? Are we men and women who will go into our world and reflect the love and grace of Jesus Christ to saints and scoundrels alike, those who think and know they need it and those who know or think they don't. Will we extend the grace of God by proclaiming the good news to our coworkers, relatives, friends, and neighbors? Will we reflect the grace of God with what we say and think and do? 
will we extend the grace of God so that the world can know of a God whose grace is unearned, unfair, unlimited, and unparalleled. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the morning. We are grateful for each person in the room, and we know that you know each person in the room. There's no sin you're unaware of. There's no struggle you don't know about. Father, there, there are, I, I am certain, there are people in the room who are uncertain of your love or perhaps came in uncertain of your love and grace. I pray that your spirit would powerfully move in the hearts of men and women to accept the grace of God. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. As we celebrate this morning that he is risen, he is risen indeed, that death is beaten and the grave's power is broken. And because of Jesus Christ, all who trust in him have life. Thank you for his grace. Let us believe it and let us extend it to others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you for brunch.